0: early August 1886, Geronimo and Niche launched a raiding campaign in Sonora that would last for a total of five days. Starting August 8th, they killed two Mexican men at the San Luis mines near the town of Cumpas, and the next day they ambushed a courier who was in fact running dispatches for the American commander that was busy hunting them down. They managed to shoot down the man's horse, but Unfortunately for them, but very, very fortunately for him, he managed to get away. Two days later, on August 11th, they struck at six Americans from a nearby mine who had started pursuing them. After several hours of fighting, three of the Americans would be dead, while another two were wounded. One of these Americans would actually get a shot off at Neiche, the bullet grazing his rifle and arm before striking his leg. The Chiricahua leader would later report to Americans that yes, he had been there for this battle and that his opponents had been very brave. The next day was the fourth and final attack of this raiding spree, when the Apache would harass the community of Turakahi, just south of Fronteras. All of this was typical activity for Geronimo, Nightshade, and the small group with them, and seems hardly worth noting. After all, raiding Sonoran settlements had been a way of life for the Apache for centuries, and this is basically all that this particular group of Chiricahua had been doing for like the past year and a half. Except, there is something to distinguish this little raid from all the ones that came before it. Because for the principal players, Geronimo and Nightshay, as well as most of the men with them, this five-day run through Sonora would prove to be the last raid of their lives. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 113, Accept These Terms. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we covered many of the pivotal events of the busy month of July 1886, as General Nelson Miles toured Fort Apache and decided that everyone had to go. An Apache delegation was sent to Washington, D.C., but failed to talk about anything substantive, and Miles convinced a very reluctant Lieutenant Charles Gatewood to take on a special mission. That mission, you may recall, was to head into Mexico with two scouts, Cayeta and Martina, and give Geronimo one more shot at surrendering. Gatewood wasn't exactly thrilled with this mission, and neither was Captain Henry Lawton when he found out about it, but finally they both decided to act on Miles' instructions. But that meant finding the Apache and getting close enough so that Gatewood could extend the olive branch without being shot. Then they received word from one of the company's own scouts, They knew exactly where to find Geronimo, because at that moment, the renegade was on the outskirts of Fronteras, asking for peace with the Mexicans? So, let's talk about Geronimo. After fleeing from Lawton and his men back on July 13th, the group had moved toward the area of Ures, where they did what Apaches do to Mexicans, culminating in the five-day campaign that we opened the show with. On August 13th, after the last encounter of that raid, Geronimo sent out feelers to some Mexicans from the safety of a high ridge where he had made his camp. He said he was ready to talk peace. A local alcalde was summoned, and he set up peace talks with the prefect stationed in Fronteras in two days' time. The very next day, the same courier for Lawton whom the Apaches had just attacked was in the area en route to Fort Huachuca and actually saw the Chiricahua and heard about these peace feelers. So he naturally sent word down to Lawton about Geronimo's location and the proposed peace talks, adding that Geronimo actually had his arm in a sling due to some injuries sustained during the last round of raiding. The prefect at Fronteras did show up on August 15th, but all he did was promise a ceasefire, and to get terms from the governor of Sonora within the next eight days. With this preliminary deal in place, two women from the Chiricahua camp were sent into Fronteras to purchase supplies and Mescal. You'll often see it erroneously reported that losen the visionary sister of the dead Victoria, was one of these women, but this is an inaccuracy that has crept into the early historical record. Lucin was still on the reservation at this time, and so was not in Fronteras getting Geronimo supplies. And it should be stressed that the Chiricahua needed supplies. Badly. Remember that just a month earlier they had lost everything when Lawton had taken their camp and they had been forced to flee. Descriptions of the Chiricahua at this time, and reported to Lawton, is that they were hungry and worn down. Historian Edwin R. Sweeney notes that many probably wanted to give up and rejoin their families, even if those families had been sent to Florida with Chihuahua and his people. Sweeney goes on to say that Geronimo probably had no intention of surrendering to the Mexicans, but was using it as a ploy and delaying tactic until he could open negotiations with an American that he knew and trusted. If that was true, it's a good thing because, once again, the Mexicans weren't serious about negotiating with the Chiricahua either. The governor of Sonora, after learning of the peace offer, sent along terms that won't shock us at all. The Apache would have to lay down their arms and then basically move to a reservation where the Mexican army could make sure they didn't cause any more trouble. Except, what he was really planning, but didn't bother telling the man who'd do the actual negotiating, was get the Chiricahua to lay down their weapons and then clap them all in irons and send them to serve a life sentence in a prison in Mexico City. And if Geronimo rejected the terms offered, all Mexican troops were to fall on the Apache and wipe them all out. The governor also helpfully upped the bounty currently placed on them from 300 to 500 pesos while offering the same amount to the families of any soldiers killed in the fighting. So the governor's terms, but not the super secret portrayal, arrived on August 21st, two days before the prefect's eight day ceasefire was up. The prefect rushed to tell the Apache these terms, but once again the Mexicans' wild e coyote had found that the Apache's roadrunner had said meet meep and ran away, leaving nothing but a silhouette of dust. Why had the Apache said meet meep and run off? The simplest answer is the same one that we've given time and time again. They were suspicious. Fronteras was full of Mexican soldiers, and their presence would always make Geronimo jumpy. He always suspected a trap, usually for a good reason, I might add, and the Chiricahua decided to up and leave this time, heading toward the Terras Mountains. Alright, and that's going to bring us back to Lawton, Gatewood, Cayeta, and Martina, who were just receiving word that Geronimo could be found talking to the Mexicans at Fronteras. Instantly, Lawton turned around and on August 18th ordered Gatewood to take his scouts and a few other men and head off towards Fronteras at once to find Geronimo's camp and open negotiations. But Gatewood didn't exactly jump to obey this order. Remember from last week that he thought his mission was a fool's errand and that he was disgusted by the fact that he had to do it. He also was still claiming to be too sick to fulfill his obligations, which was probably an even mixture of actual physical ailments and delaying tactics. And so he procrastinated all day on August 18th, until Lawton realized he hadn't left yet and then he threatened to order Gatewood Arrested. The lieutenant wouldn't actually leave the camp until midnight. Lawton and the rest of the company would follow soon enough, and they arrived at Fronteras on August 22nd, so a day after the prefect had arrived with the governor's terms only to find that the Chiricahua had gone. And Captain Lawton was livid to find that Gatewood and his group were still in the city, rather than having gone to find where the Chiricahua had run off to. In fact, they had been in the city on August 20th, so it's possible that with just a bit of effort, they could have met with the Apache women who were coming into Fronteras for supplies. But with Lott in there and the jig up, Gatewood got moving once again. Turns out it didn't take long at all for Cayeta and Martina to pick up the Renegades' trail, And by August 24th, they advised Lieutenant Gatewood to set up camp along the Bavispa River at the base of the Terrace Mountains, which they knew was a favorite camping spot of the Chiricahua. Then, leaving the army escort behind, they started to climb into the mountains. One of them carried a white flag because, honestly, they didn't know what kind of reception they would receive. Geronimo was never that happy with the Chiricahua that worked with the army as scouts, for starters, and Martino was a good friend of Chato, whom Geronimo detested. And just to make matters worse, part of the supplies that the women had been collecting in Fronteras was copious amounts of mezcal. And we've seen before that an overabundance of liquor and the Chiricahua, particularly Geronimo, was never a good mix. And we do have some evidence that Geronimo actually gave orders to shoot the two scouts when they got close enough, though enough of his men balked at this that their safety was never really an issue. Cayeta and Martina would be allowed into the camp by Cayeta's cousin, who was one of the renegades that had been watching them climb into the mountains. Sitting down with Geronimo and Naiche, Cayeta laid out what a precarious position they were in. Their people were starving, they were cold, and soldiers were constantly surrounding them. Like Crook, Kaita told him that the soldiers would never stop coming for them, even if it took 50 years. You have no friends whatsoever in this world, he said. Then he switched from the hard to the soft cell, reminding Geronimo of the comfortable life he had had in the White Mountains, and that he should really return to that. Geronimo countered that if he turned himself in, they would kill him anywhere, so why shouldn't he stay down in Mexico and what he considered his home, and die there? If he had to die somewhere, here and now was as good a place as any. Cayeta then countered that he didn't have to die now, that he could meet Gatewood under a white flag and the soldiers wouldn't hurt him. Gruffly, Geronimo said that Mongus Colorados had gone under a white flag. How did that work out for him? It took a lot more cajoling, but eventually Geronimo agreed to meet with Gatewood. Martina was sent to take the news to the lieutenant, while Cayeta spent the night in the hostile camp. The next morning, August 25th, 1886, Gatewood and some 30 men started up into the mountains for the meeting with Geronimo. After a couple hours, they were met by an Apache warrior on a ridge who shouted that Gatewood needed to send his men back, and that he could meet with Geronimo and Nietzsche in a nearby glen to talk. With just his interpreters, Gatewood sat in the glen as the Apache approached in small groups. Geronimo and Nietzsche were the last to arrive, with the latter in particular looking rather melancholy, and they both shook Gatewood's hand. There was some small talk and puffing away at tobacco that the lieutenant had thought to bring, but then it was time to get down to brass tacks. Geronimo asked what terms Miles had sent. Gatewood was clear and to the point, saying, quote, "...surrender, and you will be sent to join the rest of your people in Florida, there to await the decision of the president as to your final disposition. Accept these terms, or fight it out to the end." end quote. Geronimo then asked for some Mescal. I think you might agree that he needed a drink after such blunt terms but Gatewood had none to give. The renegade then said that his men and he had agreed the previous night that the fighting could only end if they were allowed to return to the reservation to work their farms and if they could be offered amnesty for everything they had done. But Gatewood replied that he had given them Miles' terms and he couldn't promise anything beyond them. This was their last chance to surrender. If they didn't take it, they would be exterminated or forced to take even less generous terms. At this, the Apache moved off to a secluded area for some time to debate the matter amongst themselves. When they came back, there was a short lunch, and finally the talks began again. This time, it was Geronimo's turn to be blunt. He had listed all the wrongs done to him before, and all the wrongs done to his people. They couldn't just give up their entire homeland. He looked Gatewood square in the eye and said, quote, take us to the reservation, or fight, end quote. And it's right here that the lieutenant dropped his bombshell. There were no Chiricahua still living at Fort Apache. They had all been taken away to Florida. If the renegades went back to the reservation now, they would be surrounded only by the White Mountain Apache bands, who weren't exactly their friends. I need to hit the pause button right here to say that no, you did not miss anything, and that what Gatewood said was not technically true. At this point, August 25th, the Chiricahua, aside from Loco and Chihuahua's people, were still at Fort Apache. The lieutenant only assumed that they were gone, based on conversations he had with Miles the previous month in Albuquerque. We talked last week about how Miles had suggested removing everyone and how U.S. officials had backed that plan, but the president had not given his final approval, and so removal had not been ordered yet. Also, remember that Miles didn't want to send them to Florida. So Gatewood is kind of playing loose with the facts here, backed up only by his assumptions. Geronimo and everyone with him were completely taken aback by this declaration and he asked Gatewood point blank if this was true or just a ploy he was using to get them to surrender. The announcement also sent the Apache back into a private council with each other to discuss this latest twist. When they came back, Geronimo was still defiant and he began peppering Gatewood with questions about General Miles. What kind of man was he? Tall? Short? Stout? Thin? How old? What color eyes? Did he talk nice or ugly? He also then told Gatewood that he should take a mule and ride to the nearest army fort to wire Miles and get the general to accept his terms. Of course, Gatewood replied that he didn't know where Miles was, and even if he did, he wasn't going to do it. The general had given his terms, and that was final. He also played the I'm-too-sick-to-ride card here again to get out of this demand. Geronimo was ready to argue about the point all night, and even asked the lieutenant to bring in some beef so they could keep on negotiating. But Gatewood was done. He stood up and announced that he was going back to his camp. The Apache had their terms. Take them or leave them. As they were about to part, Geronimo said to him, quote, We want your advice. Consider yourself one of us and not a white man. Remember all that has been said today, and as an Apache... What would you advise us to do? Should we surrender or should we fight it out? End quote. The fact that he asked this very question shows both that the Apache still had great faith in Gatewood, but also that they were more eager to surrender than they may have let on. After considering the question, the lieutenant simply responded, quote, I would trust General Miles and take him at his word. Then they broke apart each heading to their own camp. That night, the Apache took counsel with each other, discussing the terms that Gatewood had brought, whether or not Miles could be trusted, and what to do if the answer to both those questions was actually yes. By the next morning, August 26, 1886, they had come to their decision. Geronimo and five others rode to Gatewood's camp and called for him, using their Apache name for the lieutenant, Bai Chen Dason, or Long Nose. A few hundred yards from the camp, the wily Renegade announced his decision, and as you can probably guess, he and his men had decided to surrender. They were tired. They were hungry. They were run ragged. And as I mentioned, many had family that had already been shipped off to Florida and whom they longed to see. But it should be noted, they didn't surrender here to Gatewood. Instead, Geronimo agreed to meet with Miles on the U.S. side of the border and surrender directly to him. In the meantime, he and his people would keep their arms and march north, keeping near the main army camp, but not in it, to have a modicum of protection from Mexican attacks. After Gatewood agreed to this, Geronimo asked to meet the commander of the forces that had been running around Mexico to trap him for the last few months. So, Gatewood introduced Geronimo to Lawton, the man who had vowed just a few weeks earlier to continue campaigning until the renegade had either been killed or surrendered. At the time, the captain had definitely been banking on the killed option, but he still received Geronimo graciously, and they sat down and smoked together. During this meeting, they also set a place for their rendezvous with General Miles, Skeleton Canyon, located in the Peloncillo Mountains, roughly 60 miles southeast of Fort Bowie. Of course, word was dutifully sent up to Miles about this meeting, but we will get into the general's reaction next week. Along with this news, though, came a letter addressed to the general from Geronimo. He dictated it thanks to the help of one of the interpreters Gatewood brought with him. And in this letter, Geronimo tried again to surrender on his terms. As he was wont to do, he listed all of his grievances— all the insults he claims to have received, all the times that he had been wronged. Next, he said that he wanted to be able to return to Turkey Creek, and taking it a step further, he said he expected the government to have his family there when he arrived. He also helpfully passed along a list of Apache that had been taken to Florida that he would like to see returned to Arizona. Finally, he said that he wanted to meet the general in person, not to negotiate via letter or telegram. Quite frankly, this was an audacious letter to send, and there was no way his demands would be met. But making audacious demands was something that Geronimo never really had a problem with. So he ended the letter by making his mark, and Lawton signed it as a witness. On August 27th, the two camps, American and Apache, started their march north. According to Geronimo's wishes, the Americans and the Apache were on two parallel tracks, with only Gatewood and his men allowed to ride with the Apache. And it's a good thing that Geronimo wasn't skittish right now about being so close to American soldiers, because the very next day, August 28th, they served the protective function that he had hoped for. Both camps spotted Mexican skirmish lines advancing over a ridge, which instantly set everyone on high alert. These were 180 soldiers under the command of the prefect stationed at Fronteras, the very one that Geronimo and Nietzsche were supposed to have met with less than a week ago before they had left Fronteras because of their distrust of Mexican soldiers. Feelers were sent out to this force, saying that the Apache had surrendered to the United States, and if the Mexicans were going to attempt any funny business, they should expect to be fighting both the Apache and the Americans. Geronimo and his people were all getting ready to bolt, if necessary, to avoid their dreaded enemy when news from the American camp reached them. It appears that the prefect, Jesus Aguirre, would not be satisfied until he had met with Geronimo personally and heard it from the horse's mouth that he intended to surrender. Only a lengthy amount of persuasion could convince Geronimo and seven men to meet with Aguirre and seven of his men at a neutral site. Geronimo always suspected treachery from the Mexicans, so just getting this face-to-face was a feat in and of itself. But what happened next was something straight out of a Western film. Aguirre and his men were waiting at the prearranged spot when Geronimo came in, dragging his Winchester rifle by the muzzle with a revolver strapped to his hip. Geronimo and Aguirre were introduced to each other, and a stiff, formal handshake ensued. But then Aguirre made a move toward the revolver strapped to his waist, which caused Geronimo, a fiendish look on his face, to reach for his and half draw it out of the holster. The two stared each other down for what must have seemed like an eternity, while their respective men all got their guns at the ready. At any second, it looked like this would devolve into a shooting match that would decimate Apache, American, and Mexican forces alike. Finally, though, Aguirre relented relaxing his grip on his gun, which made Geronimo relax his grip on his gun. The prefect then asked why Geronimo hadn't surrendered at Fronteras, like they had been discussing. Geronimo's answer was brief and succinct, because he didn't want to die. He knew that the Mexicans planned to kill him, so he would never surrender to them. In contrast, he declared that he would surrender to the Americans, quote, "...because I can trust them." Whatever happens, they will not murder me and my people. I have nothing further to say. End quote. Aguirre then declared that he and his men would follow along then, just to make sure Geronimo actually carried through on his word. But Geronimo would have none of that. He didn't want, nor did he trust, an escort of Mexican soldiers. They were to head south while he and the Americans went north. Geronimo told Aguirre point-blank, quote, I'll have nothing to do with you or any of your people. End quote. The prefect, perhaps wisely, relented, and he and his men did head south, leaving the Apache and Americans to head north again in peace. I want to stop here and finish today by acknowledging the presence of an individual at these talks whom I have so far woefully neglected in this podcast. He's been around for a lot of what we discussed over the course of the Apache Wars, but he's always been just off to the side, or been another name I didn't want to bother you with while throwing a bunch of new names at you. But as listener Jerem K. recently reminded me, he's kind of important and his omission so far was a little glaring. So Jerem, here's my all-too-brief summation on Scout and Interpreter Tom Horn. Born in Missouri in 1860, Horn didn't have what you would call a good family life. He was the fifth of 12 children and had an abusive father, so by the age of 16, he slipped away and found himself working for the army. By the by, a 1903 newspaper article reported that Horn's father had to flee to British Canada soon afterward on charges of forgery. Even as a youth, he had shown aptitude with firearms, something that will play very heavily into the latter part of his career. He became a civilian packer, scout, and interpreter in the Southwest, and this is where he really starts to intertwine with our story. Because Horn started as a packer, just when Crook and his mule obsession was getting going in the Apache Wars. He also found that he had a knack for learning the Apache language, which put him in the valuable category as an interpreter, an American interpreter instead of having to go through an Apache. And from here, he popped up again and again in many of the seminal events we've discovered over the last year or so. He was in the army camp on August 30th, 1881, when Colonel Carr and his men arrested Nakai Datkline, the Dreamer, and were ambushed by Apache at Sibaku Creek, which we covered back in episode 92. He was also part of the company that managed to outflank the Apache on July 17, 1882 at the Battle of Big Dry Wash along the Mogollon Rim, which we covered in episode 95 and which is considered to be the last major engagement of the Apache Wars. He was also part of the campaigns in Mexico to put a stop to raiding and to bring in Geronimo and the rest, which, well, we've done way too many episodes on that to count. But he also pops up in Mexico on January 11, 1886, this time serving as chief of scouts under none other than Captain Emmett Crawford. He was one of the Americans who tried to stop the Mexicans from firing into their camp when Crawford was mortally wounded. This was back in episode 107. And here he is again, serving as a scout and interpreter to find Geronimo in the summer of 1886. So, you have to admit that, so far, his life and times have been fairly momentous. However, it's what happened after the Apache Wars that would solidify Tom Horn's place in Western history. And it's not exactly a great one. Following the conflict, he tried his hand at a number of things, including ranching and mining, though he never really found success with either. But he soon became renowned as a hired cowboy and hired gun, with a hatred of rustlers and thieves and a reputation for not missing his man. He even played a role in the Pleasant Valley War, a conflict that I assure you we will get into sooner rather than later, though his exact role is disputed. In his later years, he would work for the infamous Pinkerton Detective Agency, earning renown for his tracking skills as well as basically being a gun for hire during various range wars in Wyoming and Colorado. During this time, he is said to have killed. Upwards of 17 people. He would meet his end on November 20th, 1903, when he was hanged after being convicted of killing 14 year old Willie Nickel as part of a range dispute happening near Iron Mountain, Wyoming. His actual guilt is much disputed by Western historians, with some saying that he did it, others saying that it was a case of mistaken identities, and others saying that it was a setup. Apparently, the local deputy marshal got him drunk and hit a stenographer nearby to get a confession out of him. And for what it's worth, there was apparently a mock trial held in Cheyenne in 1993 that re-examined the case and acquitted Horn of the charge. But before his death, he published an autobiography entitled Life of Tom Horn, Government Scout and Interpreter which many of my sources have listed in their bibliographies and which Jerem assures me is a fascinating read. But for next week, we will need to turn away from Horn and where he currently is in our story, heading north at the end of August 1886, and turn back to General Miles and the events that would lead to his meeting with Geronimo. First, however, we will need to talk about the Chiricahua at Fort Apache again. Because... On August 24th, the day before Gatewood sat down with Geronimo and told him that all his friends and family were gone, the President of the United States officially declared that it was time for the Chiricahua to leave Arizona. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Goodbye.